0: Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is part two of my interview with Sean Ryan. If you missed part one, after you listen to this one, go back and check that out. He is the creator of The Shield, a groundbreaking show in television. Also, uh, the very underrated Terriers, and he worked on The Unit with David Mamet. We're going to get into that a lot in this episode. And uh, currently, he is the showrunner on SWAT. So we'll be talking about series finales, and we'll be talking about working with David Mamet. Also, Terriers, showrunning, network politics, a lot to get to. This is kind of a uh, supersized episode as it were. Sean Ryan, part two, this week on Hollywood and Levine.
1: I'm curious if you agree, I'm not the person who came up with this uh, concept, but but I find, and, and you're an outlier, it feels to me. I don't know you super well, but, but you seem like a very um, well-adjusted, happy guy, but I've always found that drama writers tend to be very happy and uh, comedy writers tend to be very depressed. Which oh, I, always, I think
0: that's absolutely
1: true. Which I always found to be such an interesting dichotomy. Um, it's so ironic. Uh, and I guess I understand the basic sort of, you know, from pain comes humor. Um, but I guess I expected most drama writers to be kind of very sullen and serious. And most of the drama writers I know are just frustrated, failed, uh, comedy writers like myself.
0: <laughs> yeah. Our next door neighbor is uh, a showrunner of one of the very dark crime shows. Nicest guy again, <laughs> sort of happy, easy going. Uh, yeah, no, there's a certain neurotic level, uh, when you get to, to be a, a comedy writer. Um, so moving on. Oh by it's, the way, I, I just want to mention great pilot but also fantastic finale. Oh, thank and you. I'm not going to give the spoiler alert, but series finales uh finales are are generally disappointing. You know, and yeah. yours ended in a surprising satisfying, logical way that I never would have thought of.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Well, it took us a lot of time to come up with it. That yeah. was always something I felt on the shield. I would always be suspicious of ideas that came too quickly in the writer's room. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, if this came to us in the first five minutes, um, it's probably going to come to viewers uh, before the episode's over. Uh, but I... I was very paranoid about, well, how are we going to end the show? How do we end it well? I went back and I rewatched a lot of, <coughs> excuse me, I watched a, and rewatched a lot of sort of famous finales. Um, I went back and, and watched, um, the Buffy and the Angel, uh, finales. I, uh, watched the Seinfeld finale. Um, I, I just rewatched a lot of things and thought, well, what works? I think I went back and rewatched the Mash finale. Um, Bob New, uh, uh, Newhart was another one that was famous because of the whole dream sequence thing. Mm-hmm. And, and what I re- and then I watched some bad ones, and I won't call out a lot of the bad ones. But what I found was that I think people, f- well, I'm guessing here but I'm guessing that people felt like they had to do something super special with their finale. I will call one out. I think the Seinfeld finale was not a particularly great finale. I agree with you. It became the sort of greatest hits. We're just going to bring back all these characters in this court case sort of thing um, in the supersized, I think it was an hour and a half long episode. Um, And it didn't they didn't really have a lot of story on Seinfeld to progress. You weren't necessarily interested in certain relationships so maybe that was the only way to do it but what i realized was like i just want to make another episode of the shield i don't want to feel the pressure to do some to make to suddenly make the show something different than what it is and so once i decided that it was like okay well where is this story in our season seven leading us to what are the big moments that we want to hit like we hit in any episode the only difference is that now we can end things because there doesn't, there's not going to be a next episode that has to pick us up where we left off. Um, so we spent a lot of time thinking about, well, what, you know, all the way back in season six, we were talking about, well, where do we want to end up? What are, what, what are the threads from earlier seasons that we want to tie up? And and so I give a lot of credit to the other writers in the writers room with me. And, and, um, and I do think that finale turned out, um, pretty well. And I love that we were able to sort of, you know, do it in a way that, that, that the very first episode mattered to, to, to what happens in the finale episode. Um, and yeah, I'm really proud of it. In fact, I'm, I'm actually sitting right now in the space. This is our sort of guest house. And uh, I'm looking at the desk that I wrote that finale episode on. Um, it's about 20 feet away from me right now. And I can remember um, feeling under a great deal of pressure because it looked like there was a Writers Guild strike that was potentially about to hit. And I was trying to finish the script before the strike started. Um, there ended up being a strike. And I think I finished the script maybe two, three days before the strike. And then, and then once the strike started, we couldn't do any rewriting on it um and then i didn't go you know i i was on strike so i didn't go to set to oversee it the way i normally would have and um and i was fortunate that you know that the actors kind of embraced that okay well this is the script and they're on strike and you know we're not going to change things and um yeah it it, i don't know what to say It, it it turned out well but we did a lot of hard work to sort of make it logical to make it like oh you know um this this is this is what's gonna to happen to these characters. I give a lot of credit to John Langraf, who was then and still is the the head of f x um He came in I think between seasons two and three of the shield, so the shield started outside his presence, but he became um a huge uh fan and defender of the show, and he and I would engage in long conversations between seasons, you know about what we had learned of the show. And, and he's just one of the most erudite executives, uh, that I've ever worked with. And, and he started to get me to think of the shield in Shakespearean terms. I, mm-hmm. I, don't, think I, would, I don't think I would have had the, the ego or the chutzpah on my own to do that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because Shakespeare is Shakespeare and, and I'm just making this little show on FX. But, but he got me starting to think about. Um, the tragedies of Shakespeare, about the Macbeths and the King Lears, um, and how um, people's flaws eventually morph into these sort of great tragedies. And, and I felt unleashed and freed to sort of think in those big, dramatic Shakespearean terms. And so, again, you know, for those people who are watching this podcast and have never seen the shield and maybe want to go check it out. It's it's on of, Hulu, by on the Hulu. way. I won't give away too much other than to say, um, you know, that we looked at our characters flaws and we looked at, at, at ways that um, inevitably those flaws could bring them down. Okay. Moving on from the shields. That's only
0: one part of your long career. I want to talk a little bit about the unit and working with David Mamet. What was that like?
1: Well, that was surreal because, uh, you know, I'd started writing plays, and so I was really interested in playwrights in college, and the two that I was just obsessed with were Tom Stoppard and David Mamet. And uh, I acted um, in a couple of Mamet plays in college. Um, I, from a distance, saw this parallel, I grew up in Rockford, Illinois. He was from Chicago. Um, when I was going to college in Vermont, he was by then living in Vermont. And I I felt this totally unearned kinship with him because, <laughs> of, because <laughs> of these things. You know, I felt like, oh, we, Dave, David Mab and I have all this in common. He writes plays, I write plays. Yes, his, his win Pulitzer Prize awards, and mine are just done at college black box theaters. But, you know, but we're from the same area. And it's yeah. Um, so I had this, you know, I, I can't think of a better word than just worship. I really worshipped, you know, David Mamet at that time. And uh, after season two of The Shield, um, we had a stand-in that worked on our show that said, oh, during the hiatus, I worked on a David Mamet movie as as a stand-in, and and one of the things you learn about Dave is, like, he's actually far more interested in talking to the crew um, than, like, buttering up the actors, you know, he's really interested in who the crew members are, and he talks to them, and so he would talk a lot to this extra, and the extra mentioned that his regular job is to work on The Shield, and Dave had mentioned to him, oh, that's such a great show, I would really love to direct that show at some point, and and this, uh, this stand-in came back, and referenced the story and I was like this can't possibly be true <laughs> uh, you know this like am I being played but 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 part of me so badly wanted to believe it was true that like I felt a need to like pursue it and so I was at my agency then I was with ICM at that point and I had a meeting uh, with my feature agent didn't do a lot of features but did enough that I had a feature agent and at the end of the meeting I was like, "Oh, do you guys, do you know what agency represents David Mamet? He's a he's like, well, we do here at ICM." And I said, "Oh, because I heard this story that you know, I don't want to like appear foolish because it probably isn't true, but I heard from a stand-in <laughs> that uh, that he might be interested in directing The Shield. And if so, I'd be really interested in talking about that. He's like, okay, well, I know his agent. I'll talk to him, and and I'll let you know. <laughs> and literally, I was in my car, hadn't even gotten home yet, when I get the call from him saying, oh, yeah, I talked to his agent, and he talked to Dave, and yeah, that's true. He'd, he'd be interested in directing the show. And so it started this thing where, like, okay, um, let's make a deal. And, oh, David Mamet's agreed to come. He's doing an episode. And and I was like, um, I just kept expecting that at the last minute he was going to pull out. <laughs> I did speak to him once on the phone. Um, and he seemed, you know, enthusiastic and like, okay. But I just expected he will not show up. And what's our plan when two days before prep begins and he pulls out is is Scott Brazil our producer director? Is he going to step in? What you know? How are we going to do this when it doesn't work out? And then Monday morning at ten o'clock, he's there, and I'm just like, oh my god! And 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 he did such a great job for us. I think he really enjoyed the speed of the TV process.
0: How long would <laughs> it take you to film an episode?
1: Seven days. Okay, seven business days. Usually fifty-seven to sixty-page scripts. Mm. Um and various locations. I mean, we shot so fast. Um, and I think he appreciated the immediacy of it. Um, so it was, it was a great experience for us. He seemed to have a good experience. And then at the end of that process, like a couple months had passed and I get a call from him saying, um, you know, Hey, do you want to have lunch? Um, you know, I'm finishing post on my movie. Um, but there's a guy I'd like you to meet. Um, and I said, sure, yeah, yeah. David Mamet's calling me to have lunch. Oh, my God, <laughs> yeah. And so I went there, and um, and he was interested. You know, he had made this movie Spartan, and in the doing of that, um, he had read this book by Eric Haney, who is one of the founding members of Delta Force, about what it was like to be in Delta Force. Um, and I met Eric um and David was like, you know, I, I want to do a TV show about this, but I don't know I don't really know about how to go about, you know, selling a TV show. I know plays and movies, but um, would you be interested in doing this with us? And I was like, Well, let me read the book. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, the book could be awful and I'm still gonna want to do it. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> the book tended the book was actually pretty fantastic. And um and so we were like, Yeah, let's go do it. And so it was so interesting because, you know, The Shield had this reputation for being this dirty, nasty, R-rated show. David Mamet had this reputation for, you know, writing these kind of toxic male, uh, nasty sort of plays and stuff. And we were going out trying to sell a network show. Um, And, uh, you know, we had a lot of interest. And CBS, you know, bought it in the room. Um. And all of a sudden, we're we're making the pilot, and um, only had great experiences with CBS. David and I, you know, David was interesting in that, um, you know, he he was slow to kind of embrace the notion of a writer's room. He had been, you know, a solitary writer his entire sure. career, and this idea of of working collaboratively with other writers was new to him and in some ways he really relished it in other ways he really resented it um and so we we got into a pattern that ultimately worked for the show which is that i would work with the writers um and sort of come up with the ideas and then when we felt we were far enough along the way but not completely baked yet we would bring dave into the room and sort of pitch what we had and Uh, and hear his thoughts and sometimes he hated them but a lot of times he liked it but then had great ideas to improve it um if because if he was in the room too much it, it would just sort of drive him crazy um and then when writers would write scripts i would give notes before he read them Um, I would do a little polish on it, and then we'd give the script to him, and then he would do his own polish. And and it was amazing on a weekly basis to see, you know, a script come back from him and just have, like, 20 or 25 amazing David (laughs) Mammothisms in them. Um, But he would still get frustrated, you know, if a script – if a script wasn't, um, you know, exactly what he anticipated it to be or wanted it to be. And and finally I had to say to him, I said, Dave, I said, do you want to live in a world where there are dozens of writers who can write the exact script you would write? Or do you enjoy the fact that you are well-regarded and well-paid because you are so unique as a writer? It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, I get what you're saying. Said, Don't be so tough on the writers. They're doing the best they can. They're not going to be able to write it exactly as you would write it. It's it's our job to take what where they get, and then and then you to put your personal spin. And I think once I said that to him, I, I think he adjusted his view a little bit. So so he would he would be someone that we would um, bring in at all the important sort of choke points of an episode concept story-breaking script and, and he would give the sort of final most important feedback. Um, And I love the fact that, that, you know, I was a person that was able to partner with him to bring David Mamet to TV. Uh, And I think, I believe, you know, MASH obviously was a war show during the time of war, but, but famously they, you know, transported that, you guys transported that to the Korean war, while we were framing the Vietnam War. I do believe that the unit was the first show that was sort of actively portraying a war that we were currently, currently in, yeah. in. I I'm not aware, you know, there were there were shows that took on Vietnam, tour of duty that took out after the fact. Um but but we addressed some really important issues and asked some really important questions about a very complicated time in our nation's history where we were engaged in a war based on facts that turned out to be incorrect um and really we were able to do that because we focused on um what these kinds of wars asked of our soldiers and their families and so i'm extraordinarily proud of that show that show got disrupted a little bit during the strike of 2007-2008 um, I think that show should have gone on longer. We were the victim after our fourth season of some internal politics. We, you know, our show got canceled while um while CBS, you know, favored a show that they had ownership in. Um and uh it's too bad because I think there were still more stories to tell. But but we made 66 episodes and I think there are a lot of really great episodes um within it and And we brought David Mammoth to television, and I'm really proud of that was he a big right wing guy then uh no Dave and i listen I'm not even sure you know the public persona of dave and, and who he really is can be different um so I'm not even sure that even now I describe him as a big right wing guy certainly uh his views um have tended to uh, to be viewed in Hollywood as, as, as very conservative. Um, I think he was undergoing a change during the time that I was working with him um, in terms of how he viewed the world. Um, but I never had like long extended political um, talks with him. He was a guy who um, very much uh, as a Jew cared about Israel Um, and I think the way that, um, I think the way that he viewed things going to Israel, um, affected his political views. Um, and, um, you know, I've always, you know, despite the sort of conceit that like, oh, Hollywood is this very liberal place. Um, and you're going to be ostracized if you don't hold to, you know, the approved views of things. I never found that. Um, I've worked with writers who've had a range of, of political views. Um, my attitude is is can you do the job on the show? Um, but I, but I saw Dave change a little bit during the four years we made the shield and and, and he took the you know he took the path that he wanted to take on that. Um, you know, I don't see him or hear him nearly as much. Uh, hear from him nearly as much as when we worked uh, on the shield but um um he has a new play that i'm going to go see i think in five days i think i'm going saturday um to see his new play in venice so uh so we'll see what that play has to say <laughs> maybe i'll have a different point of view after i see the play on saturday but he he was um you know i i think he was undergoing um a political change during the time uh of the unit i would say
0: well, I want to move on now to one of my favorite shows. Happened to be one of yours, Terriers. This was such a charming, fun, compelling show.
1: But no one watched San Diego. <laughs> but and that one's
0: what you and I watched. I know, I know, <laughs> and it's just like how how are you missing this, people? This was truly an undiscovered
1: gem. And you only did, like, what, 13 of them? Yeah, we did one season. Uh, it was pretty clear early on that, that we did not find an audience. And fortunately, we had filmed all 13 episodes
0: before. I don't know why. I well, I honestly don't know what you could have done
1: better. It, I think, listen, sometimes there are good shows that, People just aren't interested in watching. Sometimes there are bad shows that people love to watch. So I don't want to, like, make excuses or somehow say it's the audience's fault and not mine because it's my job to write, you know, um, this is a business and it's my show to to write and make shows that, that people are interested in watching. I blame everybody. There, for mine, I just, I, I blame everybody. I think the charms of that show um were subtler than most shows. And it was the beginning of well, there's a lot of things on TV all of a sudden. And what's the noisy thing that's gonna make me attracted to this show? I think if this was I think if that show had come along three, four, five years later and had been a Netflix show that people could have discovered on their own time. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it would have had a shot. Um, it, it was a few years too early, and then again, maybe would have we would have made it four years earlier for Netflix, and no one still would have watched it. Again, I don't want to make excuses or, or blame anyone. We thought we made a really good, entertaining um, show that was different than everything else that was on TV at the time, and and maybe people just didn't want what was different about it. I don't know, but um, but a lot of credit to Ted Griffin who I had come to know during the time of the shield. He was a fan of the show. He had written oceans 11, uh, and matchstick men. And I got to know him during that time. He wrote a freelance episode of the shield. Um, and you know, we talked to him about, Hey, do you have an idea for a TV show? Um, he's such a, you know, Big fat, yeah. Essentially, he wanted to write a modern day version of you know Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, <laughs> a little bit, um, mm-hmm. mixed with a little sort of Rockford Files, um, you know, mixed with you know sort of seventies, you know, Shaggy Dog kind of PI stories, and then it was not written to be in San Diego. Um, when we started figuring out where we could film it. Yeah, you know, we were look you know, we knew it needed to be a coastal beach town, but you know, we considered everything up to NorCal. I think we may have even looked at Vancouver, um, Los Angeles looked like it was gonna be too expensive. And then we heard about, you know, San Diego where they were just making, you know, at that point they were just making things like silk stockings, like down in San Diego there, you know, there was a whole sort of, this is where you do the sort of, you know, cheap down and dirty, uh, sort of not highly regarded shows. Um but we figured out, oh, we can go down here and oh what's this ocean beach community? And then as we spent time there, Ted really kind of tweaked the script to sort of fit that location, that community. And I thought it was just perfect. Um and I I just adore that show. Um it was it was fun. I, you know, Ted and I co-show ran that show together, but in many ways I deferred to him because he had the heart and soul of that show mm-hmm. in, his, in his mind, and so it was an interesting um, thing for me because I I wrote an episode and co-wrote another episode on that show, and so while I was technically co-showrunner, I was really almost like a staff writer trying to impress the creator mm-hmm. of the show. I really, I really reverted back to like. I, I had to put myself back into the shoes of being like a staff member rather than the final arbiter of things. And 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 there were a couple scenes I wrote that Ted was very tough on. Like, no, this isn't right. This, I, was mm-hmm. like, I was like, oh, it's good for me to remember that this is how it feels when the show me. <laughs> Like is it working? Um but yeah, it's listen, I I think the show is really well regarded within our community. Um but, yeah, I, I always have my cousin's test. Like, I would always say there was a three-, four-year period when I was making the Shield and the unit at the same time. And I would always say when people in Los Angeles found out what I did, all they wanted to talk about was the Shield. But when I would go home to Illinois and people found out what I did, they'd only want to talk about the unit. Um, And... <clears throat> A show like Terriers just never passed my cousin's test. <laughs> yeah, you know, my cousins never watch the watch Terriers. Um, it just and and yet it, it, and it also just wasn't a big enough kind of cultural phenomenon to sort of dominate the New York and L.A. markets the way that like a lot of HBO shows do. You know, a lot of HBO shows that frankly not a lot of people watch, but but all the people who watch are tastemakers in New York and Los Angeles. So so you hear about it constantly. Um, you know, we never really went over the tastemakers. You know, there weren't really articles, you know, other than a review of like, oh, this is real good and you should watch it. It it never sort of expanded beyond that um to like, oh, this is why the show is culturally important. Um it was you know, but but what I love is that there's this 13 episode thing that people can rediscover. Now, you know, as companies are starting to cull things um, from their platforms or make shows that then they don't release for tax breaks. I I worry about how long terriers will be available, you know, in the streaming universe, you know, well
0: then Uh, go see it now.
1: Does some accountant decide like it's not worth it to have? I think it's important to FX to have as much of their historical content on the platform as possible. So I, you know, I think it's being protected in, in that regard, but we'll see. But, yeah, watch it if you can. Um, it's it's 13 episodes, and I think it's unlike most things you see on TV. Well, hopefully you can
0: still get the Laserdisc.
1: <laughs> they never made a DVD of it. I tried to get them to the, They were like, nobody wants this show. What are you talking about? So, yeah.
0: So, moving forward again. You're on SWAT. You've been on SWAT for quite a few years. How different is it doing a network show for CBS in terms of interference versus when you were doing The Shield on FX, where I assumed you had an
1: awful lot of freedom? I had an awful lot of freedom uh, at FX. And I was very pleasantly surprised. I've said this. I've done two shows for CBS now. I did The Unit, and I have done SWAT. And I've had just as much freedom at CBS as I did at FX, which people find strange. Now, you have to know what show you're making and for what network. So I was not always pushing the boundaries of S&P uh, – um, language you know I, I knew this is a show for CBS so I'm not going to be able to F-bomb you know there are, you know there's a range in which the stories can take place and so I never tested those boundaries and, and you know and certainly on the unit when you're bringing David Mamet you know listen David doesn't suffer fools easily um the execs there learned that their notes better be pretty smart or they were going to be on the receiving end of, of um, one of the most hmm. um, creative and devastating tongues I've ever met. <laughs> David, David <laughs> um, And so they kind of just, le- they mostly left us alone. And then when SWAT came about, I was really busy. They really wanted my heavy involvement in that show. And I essentially said to them, I use that leverage to say, listen, I know how to make cop shows. You want me to to co-show run this with Aaron Thomas, who who created it with me? I said, I'll do that. But I have so many other things I could be doing. And if you guys get in my way, and if you're a problem for me, then you can just do it without me. And that's fine. I'm not saying that as a threat. I'm just saying, like you know, I'm developing these things that are important to me. My time is limited and I just don't have, I know how to make a cop show. I just know how to do it. I'm. That's not to say don't ever give me notes, but don't. Makes a to,
0: big difference when they trust you.
1: Yeah. But just don't try to get me to make a different show. Those are the notes that are destructive. Mm-hmm. When they're not giving you notes to help with what you're trying to achieve. I actually find those notes to be very useful. It's when they're trying to give you notes because they want you to be making something different than what you're making that it just becomes a problem. And um, I was fortunate that I had the same current exec, uh, Pam Soper, who's really wonderful on um, on SWAT that I did on the unit. So we had a long history together. Uh, and so that was helpful. Um, but I – listen, here's what I love about network TV. One, my cousins watch it. Um hmm. And they appreciate it. Two, you're making a lot of episodes, so you get to experiment and you get to try things that may or may not work. And if, if an episode doesn't work, it's just one of 22. Um, you get to have a large writing staff that you can develop these writers over time. They're each getting two or three scripts a year to write. You can see them grow as a writer rather. Whereas on a streaming show, <clears throat> each writer might only get one episode to write. And it takes you longer to sort of suss out how they're turning out. So I think they learn quickly. Um, you know, on SWAT, my writers—I know this is an issue in the in the WJ negotiations right now—but you know, my writers go to set and they produce their episodes. They're not—you know—they don't leave the show when the scripts are written, and they don't—you know—they're involved in production and editing. And very casting. important. It's, very important. You know,
0: you're feeding the
1: pipeline.
0: You know, they yeah. need that mentorship.
1: So if you see a writer that has SWAT in the writing credits, you you can assume that that writer knows how to produce their episodes. And you can assume that that writer punches above their um, the weight of their titles. So we have staff writers who have great experience producing their episodes of TV whereas there are other shows that have co-EPs that have never been on set. So I love all that about network TV. And um, and CBS pre-Strike is, was a great partner to work with. Um, and hopefully post-Strike will be as well. Um,
0: what about the, you were talking about network politics. You faced a situation where the show was canceled after six seasons and then renewed. Talk about that incident.
1: Well, I would say that wasn't the first time that happened. I had, I did a show with Eric Kripke called Timeless on NBC that was canceled after the first season. Um, and my partners at Sony and I and Eric were able to get it uncanceled. And then it got canceled again after the second season. And again, our partners at Sony and us managed to get a... Uh, a two-hour movie commitment to wrap up the series. Mm-hmm. So so we resurrected Timeless twice. Um, listen, the SWAT thing, I think, just got... SWAT should never have been canceled in the first place. Um, those decisions were happening just before and after uh, this current strike started, um, which led to a lack of communication... Understandably, because when I'm on strike, I'm on strike. And I'm not sort of dealing with the network and studio people. Um, but it, it, you know, the reality is, back in the days of Cheers, it was a pretty simple. Although I guess Cheers is an outlier because Cheers famously was like last in, in the ratings of the first season and and you know survived because uh, it was perceived to be of such high quality and you guys were you know, winning Emmys and everything. Um, but back then it was pretty simple what should get picked up and what should get canceled. Nowadays, it's a far more complicated formula that has to do with ownership, profits, the cost of the show, all these things go into it. Um and um you know, and as an outside studio owned show, so Sony owns the show and CBS, there were, you know, there were tough negotiations happening between the two companies. CBS is gonna play one show on the bubble off against another show for the best deal. Sony, you know, doesn't wanna be a pushover uh as a studio. And you know, there was just a lack of communication about what was possible. Um, for us on a on a budgetary uh aspect, which is a big part of whether the show will get picked up or not. And so I I I don't want to say too much because, you know, I wasn't there for a lot of it. I was actually in Italy when when word came down uh I was in Italy when word came down that the show was cancelled and also that the the strike was happening. Um and I think cooler heads prevailed because the show did very well last year. I say that um, I actually gave up show running duties for season six. I, I handed them off, um, which is the first time I've ever done that. You know, I, I, I sort of ran the show through season five. And then my lieutenant, Andy Dettman, um, who's really great. Um, I started to empower him more and more during the second half of season five, because that's when we were making uh, our new Netflix show, The Night Agent. And um, and then completely handed him the reins. Um, for season six, so I can say like ratings in my absence as showrunner, ratings were up, people loved the show, the show was doing really well creatively. It never should have been cancelled, and I would describe the cancellation renewal as as a new form of negotiation <laughs> mm. um, if that's one way of putting it um, so it was just all about economics and uh and finding the right deal that could work for CBS and for Sony. And, and, and the show never should have been canceled. And, and ultimately it wasn't canceled. And great. So,
0: well, you have done such great work. I'm so thrilled. I was able to get a chance to talk to you. This is a real get for my well, podcast. To have I've, you
1: on. I've got to start my own podcast so that I can pepper you with questions for like an hour. I, there's so much about your career and all the shows you worked on that, yeah, I, I, I consider myself an amateur TV historian, and you've just worked on some of the best shows ever, and, and reading your blogs, even about the failures, which we've all had, <laughs> um, is so interesting. So, um, well, I'll uh, take you to lunch.
0: You can ask me any question you well, want.
1: Well, I, I admire and respect you and your career, and, and if not for people like you, I never would have been inspired to get in this business, so thank you.
0: Wow, I'm proud to know me. Okay, that's Sean Ryan. And if you haven't seen The Shield, do see The Shield. And I'm not sure. I think Terriers is showing on one of the streaming services. And if you haven't seen it, you're not really familiar with it, treat yourself. It is a a good series. You're going to watch it, and you're going to go, Why wasn't this a hit? This is great. Anyway, our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. My email address, should you wish to get in touch with me, is Hollywoodlevine at Outlook.com. That is Hollywoodlevine at Outlook.com. I'm also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Next week, well, we take a big turn. We're going to be talking about broadcasting uh, a, a Hall of Fame broadcaster is going to be with me next week. How's that for a tease? Anyway, we will see you then. Thank you so much for listening to Hollywood and the Fine